Father, we praise you. You are the sovereign of the universe. You are in absolute control of everything, and so we can lean on you and trust in you, and we thank you. And we praise you, for you are good. And we seek you and ask that you would help us to understand your word today, and that especially the part about the Holy Spirit, and that we would be filled with your spirit. So come and teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. We're going to look at uh, page 569 in the Bibles we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you, and we're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And as I promised, last week we covered one verse that we would cover a little bit more this time. And so we are looking at John the Baptist. So what is the motto of the Boy Boy Scouts? Be prepared, right? That is really, really good. Uh, Very, very important. And that's what's going on with John the Baptist. In fact, the biggest event in the history of humanity was about to take place, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And God needed to prepare his people. By the way, uh, the next biggest event could take place even in our lifetime, and that's the second coming of Jesus. So the question is, are you prepared? So here we see, though, that God needed to prepare his people for this event through John the Baptist. And, And what was it like at that time? I mean, we can only just imagine, right? I'll tell you what. Come with us to Israel. We're going to Israel in May, and we'll get to see the land and see things going on, and, uh, and it really does come to life. But in our passage, we're going to see a description of this preparation. Uh, Israel was ecstatic in anticipation because of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I wish we had time to look at it. But that passage actually predicts that 483 years after the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which is found in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 25, given by Artaxerxes to Ezra, in 458-57 B.C., so 483 years later, Messiah's ministry would begin. All you got to do is do the math. 26-27 A.D. is when it figures out to be, right when Jesus came on the scene. Well, that's why everybody, they knew the prophecies, and everybody was looking to the coming of Messiah. But they didn't know what it was going to be like, and so they needed to be prepared. And that's what we see in our passage. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, 
One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So let's see how John the Baptist prepared the people. Okay, first of all, we see in verses two and three that John was actually, John the Baptist was actually predicted in the Old Testament. He quotes here, verses two and verse three are quotes of Isaiah 40, verse three, and Malachi 3, verse one. And it's speaking of this idea of preparing the way of the Lord. You see, in ancient times, before a king came to a city, he would send a herald to go out, to go to the city to get the people ready, and also to check the roads and make sure the roads were straight and flat and so forth. And, uh, and so that's what we're seeing going on here in a spiritual sense. Uh, we see John the Baptist as that herald to prepare the way for the coming king, Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, but this was predicted in the Old Testament. To fulfill prophecy is a miracle. Uh, You can't just predict the future in detail and getting it right every time by accident, all right? And, and that's what we see in the Old Testament. This is just two small examples here. But in the Old Testament, it's filled with prophecies. In fact, Daniel chapter 11 alone, one single chapter, predicts over 130 detailed events that take place hundreds of years later during the intertestamental time period. Got it right every single time. The Old Testament has over 300 predictions that Jesus fulfills in detail. Uh, In fact, if you're interested in some of those details, I like that kind of stuff. Uh, You'll find them in this book, okay? Good stuff. But look at this. To fulfill prophecy is a miracle. Now, miracles might be inconvenient to atheists, but it will be a whole lot more inconvenient when they realize they were wrong after they die, which is why we want to tell them ahead of time. We want them to come to Christ. And there's lots of atheists that come to Christ. Don't think they're such a hard rock to, to break that that can't happen. Lots of it. I've led atheists to Christ. So it is very possible. And it's because we see the miracles that are evidence of these things taking place. But Amos 4, verse 12 says this, prepare to meet your God. We need to be prepared. Now, the Bible, it satisfies both the mind and heart. As you dig into God's word, you see these prophecies fulfilled, you see these incredible things being talked about, and your mind is blessed. But not only that, your heart is stirred in love because it draws you into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's God's design. What a great book. Okay, so we see this, though. We need to be prepared. In fact, we need to make our paths straight. This language in this passage here, prepare the way, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, is also found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. In fact, these are some verses that a lot of people have memorized because of their, you know, the blessing they bring to their lives. So look, let's look at that. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. 
Here he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's that faith. That's that leaning on him instead of your own understanding. Because see, we're finite beings. We make mistakes. We don't know everything. But God has proven himself to be faithful, so we trust in him. And in all our ways, we know him. He's speaking not just of a head knowledge, but of a personal relationship with him. In this relationship, he will make your path straight. You know how to get the path made straight? You trust in him, and he makes the path straight. Awesome, God. So don't be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and nothing else, and turn away from evil. So we see we need to make our path straight, to be prepared. Now, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he calls people to repent. This is how he calls them to be prepared. The time is now to get right with God. And we see here he starts out, verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's several things in that. Baptism, repentance, and forgiveness of sins. But how does it all that work, okay? We actually see this same combination in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 38. When Peter, after the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was poured out, he preaches a message to the large crowd that had gathered, and then they, at, this is their response, and Peter's call to them. Look at chapter 2, verse 37. He says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Now, he's referring there. See, they listened to the message. They, he told them about how Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They were pierced to the heart. They came to truly believe, okay? Pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here we see the same ideas, repentance, baptism, forgiveness of sins. He then adds the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, in our passage in Mark, he also talked about that at the end of our passage in verse 8, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we see all these components there as well. But it brings up a question, okay, how do I get my forgiveness of sins? What actually brings about the forgiveness? Is it the baptism or is it the repentance? Is it the heart or is it the act that I go through? How does this work? Well, fortunately, we Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he explains. So look at Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Okay, in Luke 24, this is Jesus talking. Luke 24, verse 46. He also said to them, 
This is what is written. The Messiah would suffer. Do you hear a ring? Where's the sound guy? I think something needs to be. I've been hearing it's driving me crazy. Yeah, if we just touch that a little bit, I don't know how to fix it. I say press a button. All right. Uh, He says here, well, let's go back to the passage. Um, Verse 46. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So we see very clearly Luke, who wrote both Acts and Luke, is saying that it's the repentance. It's the heart that trusts in God, the faith, a heart of faith and repentance that brings about the forgiveness of sins. But baptism, as we learn from the rest of the book of Acts, is typically when that took place, okay? In fact, in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, that's when Paul, he's going over how he got saved. It says that he got saved at his baptism. So in the re- so he repented at his baptism. So it's the timing normally in the Bible days of when a person's got got saved, but it's their f- a heart of faith and repentance that brings about the actual forgiveness. So there's nothing magical in the water that does it, but that's the timing and the ceremony, so to speak, of when people would get saved in the Bible times. We know that from Acts chapter 10 as well. In Acts 10, it speaks of how they were saved, filled with the Spirit, and then got baptized. Okay, so we see that it's that faith in Christ, but when a person came to that place where they were ready to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus, seriously thinking about it, then they went ahead and were baptized uh, as an outward sign of that inward faith, okay? So that's how we're to understand it. And that's how, why passage, I want to look at 1 Peter 3.21, because that's a passage that becomes, uh, for many people, it becomes a very difficult passage. How, do, how are we to understand uh, this First uh, Peter 3.21? But when you see it in light of the whole big picture, it all makes sense. Look at First Peter 3. 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you read that verse, and at first you might think, well, it says baptism saves you. So is it the baptism that saves you? Well, we've already seen from the Scriptures that it's that heart of faith and repentance that brings the salvation, but it is at your baptism. That's why he says, not as the removal of dirt from the body. So not the physical, actual thing. That represents, that act of baptism represents the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It represents that surrender to Jesus as Lord. And so typically in the Bible days, they were saved at their baptism, but their repentant hearts of faith are what brought about the salvation. Now, because of this, though, uh, we see that repentance is at the center of all this, isn't it? With John the Baptist, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We see it in Acts chapter 2 as well. That gospel brought in that idea of repentance. So what is repentance. Kind of sounds important, doesn't it? Okay, what is repentance? Well, here's my definition of repentance. It is a change of mind and heart about your sin that leads to a change 
of lifestyle. You see, it is a change of mind and heart about your sin. You come to a place where you realize, I, my sin is bad. It is what has destroyed this world. It's what's destroying me. I don't want it in my life anymore, but I can't stop. So I put my trust in Jesus. See, so it's that change of mind and heart, but that change of mind and heart will inevitably, eventually lead to a change of lifestyle um, when we understand this correctly. So we want to make sure we understand repentance is not a work. It's not something you do to get saved because if it was, then it would be works salvation, wouldn't it? Okay, so repentance is not a work. It's actually, repentance is not stopping sinning. Because if repentance was you stop sinning, and repentance, as we see, is necessary for salvation, then that means that you have to stop sinning in order to get saved, in order to get the power to be able to stop sinning. That doesn't make any sense, does it? So it's not the stopping of sinning. That would be a work. It's the heart that wants to stop sinning. It's a change of heart about your sin. But when you put your trust in Christ, inevitably a change of action at least gradually takes place, what we call sanctification. Okay? So, in fact, look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Here... John the Baptist is baptizing people and he sees some Pharisees coming along and he recognizes their hypocrisy. He sees their hearts are not changed. That they're coming, they're wanting to just go through the motion and their hearts are not changed. And this is what he says to them. Verse seven, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. You see, repentance will bring about fruit. Now, fruit is not the root, right? So you're not, your works, good works, are the fruit of someone who's genuinely repented. So, and so naturally, you're going to have this natural fruit. But the fruit isn't what saves you. The fruit is the result of a real salvation through repentance. Does that make sense? Okay, so, but it's, there is going to be change. That's my definition, a change of mind and heart about your sin that leads to a change of lifestyle. But let us not be, uh, uh, not misunderstand. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Look at Acts three nineteen. He makes it clear. Peter is talking here. Acts 3.19, he says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. A repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So repentance is necessary. A heart, a change of mind and heart about your sin. You don't want the sin in your life anymore, so you cry out to God to save you, all right? So this John the Baptist, this is how he's preparing the people. He's calling them to this repentance with this outward sign of baptism so it's made real for them. See, uh, 
God loves these earthy signs and symbols, doesn't he? Like the Lord's Supper and baptism and, and the festivals, and et cetera. And, and that's what we see here. And so this is what he's preaching. But then it goes on in verses five and six, and it describes what took place as he preached this baptism of repentance. It says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So John was a little strange, <laughs> right? Okay, and, and in fact, though, John is really, he looks like Elijah. See, there hadn't been a prophet for 400 years that had come on the scene, and now John the Baptist comes on the scene. Everybody recognized him as a prophet, and he looked like Elijah. So that's what's going on with the, uh, the way. But he's strange, but humble. Uh, we see this, this humbleness in the way he dressed, a humbleness in the way he ate, a humbleness. He was out in the desert. He lived in the desert, which is, by the way, why we need to get alone so often to be able to hear the voice of the Lord. It really worked. But he's, and we'll see later in 7 and 8, he was humble enough to point people to Jesus not himself, but his message brought revival. You see verse five? The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. There's a myth out there today that says that if you preach repentance, people will stop coming and you're gonna turn people off and the church will die. There's this this lie out there that we got to whip everybody up and tell everybody how wonderful they are and, and uh, don't say anything negative and don't trip anybody up in any way or fashion. And that's how you're going to go to church. Well, guess what? Back in the 70s, when the greatest revival of this country ever took place, and that's the Jesus movement, more people got entered into the kingdom of God because of that revival than at any other time, even more than the first and second great awakenings. More people came to Christ because they weren't afraid to say, repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. And this was the symbol. He's the only way. That's in the late 60s and 70s when postmodernism started. You think it's not going to work now? Let's try it. <laughs> okay? Repentance. This is what he preached. This is how John preached. Certainly with humility, with a humble nature, but he preached repentance and revival takes place. And then we see that John exalts Jesus. Look at seven. He, pro by the way, almost forgot. Do you notice what he ate? Locusts and wild honey. Locusts, it was actually in the Old Testament, that was a clean thing that you could eat. It describes only a few different kind of bugs could, were clean. And uh, they had, actually had to have segmented legs and be able to jump. That was the kind. So locusts, you know, those kinds of things you could eat. And the rest of the bugs you couldn't eat. Okay. Thing is, though, is, you know, so they're clean animals. But I hate it when the legs get stuck in your teeth. Just kidding. I never, I've never eaten a locust. <laughs> Dip it in honey, maybe, I guess. So... John 
exalted Jesus, verses seven and eight. Look at what it says. He proclaimed one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was the first I am second advocate. I don't know if you've seen those videos. I am second. They're awesome. I'm going to show you one in just a minute. But he said in John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. It's not about me. He didn't try to get, get, get the focus on himself. I am second, or maybe third or fourth or fifth, whatever. Okay. I want to show you one of those videos. As a sophomore, I was injured as a junior. and Wrestling was something that I did my whole entire life. And I think the losing that passion for that and having any drive just felt unaccomplished and I got in with the wrong crowd and started, you know, doing some drugs and uh, partying and kind of living super carelessly and it almost consumed my life. I felt like my road was running to an end. For a while, I wasn't who I was. I was in a dark, very dark place, a very, very dark place. And uh, almost... You know, um, hung myself, and uh, my brother uh, came in the door, and he uh, saved my life. It's the first time I'm talking about it, but uh, <clears throat> it was, uh, I've always never, I've never been more grateful for him. He just came in and bust down the door and, you know, gave me the biggest hug and, you know, and sat there with me and cried with me and, you know, and said everything was going to be all right. And, uh, and that was the day that, you know, really was a changing point for me in my life as well. And that moment, that bond and that thing that we, you know, what we went through really, you know, brought us even closer. And we ended up, you know, attending church services together. And, and it was nice to be there with my big brother and, Worships and God and learning and you know growing towards Him. So that was a start of a you know a growing relationship with the Lord through going to the church, through reading different books about the Lord, and just kind of growing my relationship with Him on a spiritual level, speaking to Him daily. I really understood that God sometimes carries you through this life. He's definitely carried me a lot of times in my life and still carries me. Surrender is a, a foreign word to many fighters, and it was a foreign word to me in my life. But uh, there's a time and a place that you do need to surrender, and I'm always thankful that I'm able to surrender to him. It's not a, that I'm fighting in it anymore. There's a lot of life events that I can look back on that he was with me. You know, sometimes he would be carrying me, pulling me, pushing me. A higher power, if you want to say. And that higher power was, was, was Jesus Christ. I always knew that he was with me. My name is Cody Garbrandt, and I am second. Surrender. John was second. 
See, pride will keep you from Jesus more than any other sin. But when we surrender to him, it changes our lives. So Jesus brings the baptism in the spirit. And that was the announcement. He's pointing people to Jesus. He's saying, I'm nothing. But one's coming after me. He's gonna baptize you not with just water, but with the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, this idea of the baptism in the spirit is a, uh, it's actually a kind of a divider in Christian circles, isn't it? You have the, non-charismatic evangelicals and the charismatic evangelicals that agree on so many things, but they kind of butt heads on this issue. What is the baptism in the Holy Spirit? And I actually believe they're both right. (laughs) And that we can gain from both groups in this whole idea of what is the baptism in the Holy Spirit even. So first of all, the non-charismatic evangelicals, they will say all believers have the Spirit, and they're absolutely right. Okay, look at this. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans 8. This, by the way, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, this particular chapter has more references to the Holy Spirit than any other chapter in the entire Bible. In Romans 8, verse 9, it states, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So all believers have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. That's what he's saying here. All believers have the Holy Spirit. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, actually chapter 12, 13, and 14, is the longest passages of Scripture talking about the spiritual gifts. So about the Holy Spirit. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, here's how he begins this, this passage. He says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Notice we all have the Holy Spirit to drink from. He's referencing John 7, 37 through 39 there, about the Holy Spirit, how we will drink him in. But here he says that it's initially... At our salvation, we were all baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. Now, that phrase, baptized by one spirit, is the exact same Greek phrase as our passage in Mark chapter 1 and our passage in Acts chapter 2 that refers to the baptism in the spirit. It has the Greek word baptizo and pneuma. En can either mean in or by. In the Greek, but that's the same phrase, baptism in the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. It's the same exact Greek phrase, yet here it's referring to how it initiates us into the body of Christ. And so the evangelicals are correct in saying all believers have this whole, have the Holy Spirit. But I also believe the charismatics are right that all believers can and should be empowered by the Holy Spirit where it's something that you know that you know that you know actually took place. It's so experiential, other people even see it. Okay, that's how we see, in fact, look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Here he refers once again to this idea of the baptism in the Spirit. Acts 1, 
verses 4. This is Jesus is talking. He's already resurrected from the dead, and he's taught his disciples, and now he's just before his ascension. This is what he says. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See how he's describing this baptism in the Spirit? That they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them and thus making them able to be fantastic witnesses of the gospel in power. So we see this very experiential component to the baptism in the Holy Spirit where it's empowered and we know that it has taken place. Another passage that, that draws on this is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Uh, another really wonderful passage speaking of the Holy Spirit and this promise of God. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. So notice here, right when you believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So you have the Holy Spirit right at salvation, right? But then he goes on to say in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This word down pay payment, arabone, it means a down payment. It's not just a promise. You know what a down payment is? Anybody ever taken out a loan? Okay, and actually had to pay a down payment for it, I mean, <laughs> like with a house or something like that. Okay, a down payment is an actual amount, isn't it? It's an amount you give as a promise that more is to come. God gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a promise of the amount that's going to come later when Jesus comes back. Now, when Jesus comes back, then it's like, whoo, right? I mean, when, when he comes back, I think even non-charismatics are going to go, whoo, okay? That's, what, that's what's going to happen, okay? But the, the down payment is an actual experience smaller than that. Maybe it's a whoo. No, actually, I think it's a whoo. And that the part, when Jesus comes back, we're all going to go, wow. You know, who knows what it's going to be like then, right? But it's an actual amazing experience that God wants us to have that we know that we know that we know. A down payment, when you get it, you know you got it. Does that make sense? So the Holy Spirit, the experience of the Holy Spirit, this is what he's talking about. Uh, Jonathan Edwards talked about this. See, he had the same problem back then. They had charismatics and non-charismatics. They actually called them new lights and old lights, okay? They had this whole thing going on where the old lights just wanted everything kind of straight and narrow and nice, okay? But the new lights uh, were ex more experiential. This is what Jonathan Edwards said in his book, A Treatise on Religious Affections, a fantastic book, by the way. This is what he says. He says, in most of the conversions of particular persons of which we have an account in the New Testament, 
they were not wrought upon in that secret, gradual, and insensible manner which is now insisted upon, but with those manifest tokens of a supernatural power wonderfully and suddenly causing a great change, which in these days are regarded as undoubted signs of delusion and enthusiasm. <laughs> See, and he's, he's open for the enthusiasm. Me too, okay? So there's this feeling, call it baptism, feeling, whatever you want, who cares about the words, but you want to experience it, don't you? The Holy Spirit controlling us as we surrender. He falls upon us. We're empowered. We know that we know that we know that he's true. So here's my definition of baptism in the Spirit. It's an experiential empowering. So experiential empowering of the Spirit for inclusion in the body of Christ, for service and holy living that begins at regeneration and continues throughout one's life. So I hope that you have a baptism in the spirit of the Holy Spirit that you experience over and over and over in your life. I don't want just a second work of grace. I want a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a hundredth. Okay, and that's what we're seeing, I think, what they're talking about here. Uh, so, I remember my first experience of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Wow, okay. That's, uh... So, why did God's people need to be prepared for the coming of the King? You see, his coming would change the world. And there is no one like Jesus. Since I met Jesus, my mind is satisfied with truth. I dig in, and the more I dig in, the more it's like, wow, you are amazing, God. This is true. This is real. And uh, I remember I debated a, an atheist, professional atheist in Colorado Springs many years ago named Dan Barker. Uh, and uh, we had this debate, and he, uh, uh, it, was, it was really cool, really fun. People were asking me, they said, you're not going to debate, debate an atheist. What if he asks you a question you can't answer? I'm like, we have the truth, right? Don't we? So we had this debate, and then the atheist paper, they, put a, they wrote, a, wrote a, an article on the debate afterwards, and they called it a draw. Okay. If the atheists call it a draw, I won. <laughs> because we have the truth, and it is deeply satisfying to the mind, but also my heart is overwhelmed with love. Deep feelings I don't even know how to describe on a regular basis. This is what God wants as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and a purpose that's real. See, people need a cause, but not all causes are real. Helping people follow Jesus and share him with others so as many as possible will be prepared for the coming king, that's a purpose worth living for and worth dying for. Have you met Jesus? Have you Receive the Holy Spirit. How are you prepared? Let's pray.